A reading from Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Well, uh, my name is Ed, and I'm glad you're here today uh, to be a part of what's going to happen today. I have been praying for you and for me as we enter this final section of Paul's letter in uh, Ephesians. If you haven't been with us, we've been in this one letter, uh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus, writing to this church in Ephesus for months now. And we're coming down to the very last chapter. In fact, we only have two weeks left. left. And today, I have an exceptionally difficult task. I have to talk to you about something that I know going into it, at least 50% of the room does not believe is real. The other 50%, even for those of you who are followers of Jesus who do believe it's real, you have such a cartoonish image of it that it's not helpful to you, or you have a horror movie version of it that is equally as damaging. Today I have to try to get you to think about it seriously and sober-mindedly, and to take all those groups, it's not an easy task. People who don't believe at all that what I'm about to say is true and others who have these distorted beliefs that are not helpful to them in any way and try to bring us all into focus. But I want to say to you before I get started, I am absolutely convinced that what I have to talk to you about today is real. It's not a metaphor. This is not trying to direct you with some kind of language to something else that's going on. It's explaining what is going on in our world and has been for the last thousands of years that often we can't explain because we don't want to look at this seriously. So here it is. We are in the midst of a spiritual war. And I don't mean, I don't mean the kind of spiritual war that I recently heard a governor south of here use to talk about fighting his political foes and using this scripture totally out of context. I'm not talking a spiritual war against somebody called Republicans or somebody called Democrats. We're in a spiritual war. And it's not against countries that you can see borders on a map somewhere. We have, a, we have an enemy. Our leader... Our Lord was absolutely clear on this. And our enemy is cunning, and his desire is to kill everything that God made that was good, to murder everything that God wants in this life, to steal every blessing that God has for his children, to destroy human beings, to disrupt everything happening in our world, to destroy the work of the family, and to destroy the work of the church in the world. I know this. I believe this at the core of my being. And yet, I have to confess to you, sometimes I just get distracted. I know there's a war going on. I know there's a real war going on. Not the kind that gets talked about on the news, and yet sometimes I find myself just sleeping through it. Sometimes I find myself caught up in other things and I forget just how real 
the consequences are of this war we're fighting. And so I want to try as hard as I can. I've been praying as much as I can that I can help as many of us as I can to open our eyes to the spiritual warfare that's taking place all around us and not some cartoon image you have. My prayer is that the day will be like an alarm going off and people will hear it and understand it. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, you're involved in a battle. And our war is the battleground. But can we just all be honest that for most of us in the United States of America, it doesn't feel like a battleground? I mean, for most of us, our life is so good, particularly when you talk on a weekend of Thanksgiving, when you look at all the things you celebrated, when we talk about helping people in our world with gifts, when you look around at all the things that are happening and you're looking forward to Christmas, and for the most part, anything that gets your plans off track, you think that's the battle. It is not the battle. I mean, when things get a little off track, we're mostly focused on entertainment and what I can do and what's next because our life is just so exciting. We think the idea of this life is that God would just make our life smooth and good, but the truth is the enemy would love nothing more than for you to think that life is one big playground when you're living on a battleground. I saw this image they're going to put on the screen here a few months ago from Ukraine, and I just couldn't get it out of my mind. The idea that parents, I mean, there's a playground and there's a bomb crater next to it. And in their world, that's very real. No parent lets their kids go far with that kind of image right out the back door. Well, we live in that world. But you can't see the craters everywhere around you. You know, when you're on a battleground, there's a certain amount of preparation and awareness and sensitivity you have to your surroundings and you recognize that an attack could be imminent at any time and you recognize what your enemy looks like and what they're trying to do and the most dangerous way for you to live your life is to live your life on a battleground as if you're on a playground. And so Paul ends this letter to people he loves and he warns them that the true battle it's been taking place. He's been writing about it now for four chapters, and I'm hoping that this can be a wake-up call for us. In studying for this, I heard about a condition that has recently been, you know, everybody does sleep studies these days. In fact, some of you may have gone through sleep studies, but I, I heard about people who suffer with severe insomnia. Now, I'm talking about severe insomnia to the point that they have this sickness that's now called hypnagogia. It's a state where people are actually asleep, but because they've struggled with insomnia for so long, they feel like they're awake. In fact, it isn't until they go into the sleep study and doctors can watch them and see that physically they're asleep, but they still react to the sleep as if they're awake because the whole time they're asleep, their mind is active in the way it is when they're awake. They're actually dreaming about being awake, trying to fall asleep while they're already asleep. And so they get none of the benefits of the sleep. Their bent bodies are just worn out. And I came when I heard about that, I thought, that's where the church is in America. That's the way I've lived a lot of my life of walking around. I've been asleep thinking I was awake. 
I've been asleep to what's really going on in the world. But I'm, I'm, I thought I was awake. There's this condition that most of us as followers of Jesus live our life in. So today, I want to challenge you with this last section as much as I can that Paul's letter, he says to us, a final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And so that's where I want us to begin. We already sang about it just before I got up here. The strength and the power that we need to fight this battle is not ours, it's Jesus Christ. You can't get enough people together and make it think that you can go against it. It can only be done in the power of Jesus. But the power of Jesus is enough, right? So there is no need for fear and anxiety when I talk to you about this. We're not overwhelmed by the darkness. Our enemy is like a roaring lion, but greater is the one in us than the one that's in the world. We have the power of God available to us. The Bible says the same power that brought Jesus back from the grave is alive in followers of Jesus. It can be used by followers of Jesus. And so when we talk about these things, we do with a spirit of courage and confidence, not in ourselves but in the mighty name of Jesus. If we're fighting the battle in our own power and strength, then you should be very scared. Because it's like running into a war without any weapons of protection. Like a friend of mine used to say, going to a knife fight thinking you were at a debate. But when you know who you are, which is what we've been trying to emphasize to you now, for all these weeks, when you understand who you are, a child of God, chosen by God, cleansed by the blood of Jesus, promised that he'll finish his work in you, giving grace in every spiritual gift to come together with the church to stand against the power of evil. We don't have to enter into these conversations with fear and anxiety because the power we need for this battle comes to us through Jesus. Put on then God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. Now, your eye may be drawn to the idea of the armor of God. What is that all about? Well, really, it's what we've been talking about throughout this whole series. It's about you knowing who you are in Jesus, that you are not a solitary soldier sent off on your own, but you are in the army of God in this world. The more important part for us to talk about is the word strategies. What are the strategies of the devil? Well, some translations use the word scheme or methods, but they all come from a Greek word that means the intentions, the plan, the agenda of the enemy. Paul wants us to know that a strategy is unfolding in our world. And in some ways, we can see this more clearly in our modern world than in any generation before. Because we have the benefit of history, we can see how evil works its way through societies over and over again throughout history, and even now in places all over the world. And no matter how much progress we make as human beings, the same problems keep popping up again and again in cultures and communities all around the world. It's like there's a plan or an intention behind it. So Paul says, we have to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. 
Therefore, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against the evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, and against mighty powers in this dark world, and against the evil spirits that are in heavenly realms. There is a spiritual battle being fought all around us. The word for fighting here is interesting because there's a number of words that Paul could have used to describe war, but the one he chooses implies wrestling. This is hand-to-hand -hand combat. This is important because as Americans, we tend to think of war as something that happens somewhere else. We've all lived through wars, and over the past couple of decades, we know that there's been a war going on and that our nation is a part of it, but it's not happening here. It's over there. And so we're vaguely aware of it, but we don't feel the sense of urgency of war. We can go days, sometimes even weeks, without it really crossing our minds. Whereas if it was here, it would always be front and center. We could not escape it if we tried. And Paul uses a word that says that the war is right here. It's not over there. And it's hand-to-hand -hand combat. This thing is personal. It's taking place in your life, in your relationships, inside our homes. It's not just something that's happening over there. It's happening right here. And he says that our fight, our battle, it's not against flesh and blood enemies. It's against the devil. And for most of us, we hear the devil and we're like, okay, I'm out. <laughs> you don't mind talking about the devil as like a metaphor for evil, sure. But are we talking like a literal devil, like horror movie, exorcism, head spinning around devil? I know people do evil things, but a devil who's behind it all? Come on. And here's the truth. Our enemy loves for us to think of him that way because he wants us to just go back to sleep, live our lives like he doesn't exist. He wants us to treat the battleground of our world like it's just a playground that we use for fun. He doesn't want to be on public display. And for most modern people, we fully cooperate with that. Instead of thinking about this with some real adult thought, we just retreat into these images of what we just want to believe. And eventually we stop thinking of evil as a person or a spiritual enemy to be resisted, but as just some kind of natural thing that happens in our world. And when that happens, we try to find natural solutions to supernatural problems. So for example, we see a problem like violence. People go to Walmart and get shot. We see it happen again and again and again, and you think, what's the natural solution to that? I mean, what do we do about something like that? What's the problem? Oh, violent video games, or other people have too many guns, or we should work on mental health. And we try to find different solutions to fighting this problem. Here's what I want to ask you. How are we doing at that? How's that going in our world? You see the continued problem in our world of racism and nationalism. You'd think at our point in the 21st century, we'd be smart enough, surely, that racism would have lost all its power over us. The stupidity of thinking that somebody who's of a different way of, that they look different to us, that somehow their value is determined by that. That somehow, because somebody got 
pushed out of the womb on the other side of a made-up line that we put on the planet that somehow they're not as good as us. And yet the enemy uses this same plan for hundreds and thousands and thousands of years. And people keep thinking, oh, there's a natural solution to this thing. Maybe it's a political solution. Maybe we all ought to get together and maybe get something together. Now, the natural, natural solutions have impact? They do. Sure, education is important, and there are things that political powers should be doing that they're not doing, so they have an impact. I mean, taking a cough drop when you have lung cancer deals with the cough, but you got a bigger problem. And so education needs to take place, and politics need to do their part, but we have a bigger problem. And of all the people that ought to know, it's followers of Jesus sitting in this room. We should not be distracted by that stuff. We have to look at the idea of spiritual warfare. And remember, there is a real enemy that's been around for hundreds and thousands for eternity. Our real enemy would love nothing better for you to go to battle against the wrong enemy. And people in our country are going to battle against the wrong enemy every single day. That's why, if you didn't catch it, Paul says, your enemy is not flesh and blood. If you see somebody that is flesh and blood and you think you're, they're your enemy, guess what? You're wrong. Somebody that is flesh and blood is not your enemy. You have an enemy, but your enemy is not some teacher that you think is saying your faith is unfounded. Your enemy is not some judge that you think is allowing our country to be destroyed. Your enemy is not some political person on the other side of the aisle. Your enemy is not the social media or the person who is trying to push some agenda and pushes your buttons all the time. Your enemy is not the relative who mocks you today for being here. Those are not your enemies. We do have an enemy, but our enemy is not flesh and blood. Can we be clear on that? Our battle is not against flesh and blood. And here's the danger of getting confused on it. When you get confused and you think that your enemy is flesh and blood, what happens is you use the wrong weapons against them. If you're fighting flesh and blood, of course you pick up human weapons. And what you pick up are the weapons of the enemy. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 13, we are human, but we do not wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and destroy false arguments. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, so we, we followers of Jesus, we don't wage war like the enemy does. So what happens for many of us is we feel the battle going on and we we feel attacked, so we pick up weapons like sarcasm and hate and rage and contempt. And the enemy comes alongside of us and goes, okay, gun up, big boy, let's go. Because you're fighting with his stuff. We grab hate and rage and ridicule and contempt and sarcasm and think we can go into a spiritual battle, but what you don't realize is at the moment that you pick up those weapons, you are on the side of the enemy. And our enemy would know nothing better than to see followers of Jesus pick up 
the weapons he's thrown down in our world. This is why. Can you see? This is why. Jesus says to followers of Jesus, here's what we do with enemies. We pray for them. Can you see? This is why Jesus said, when you think you have a flesh and blood enemy, what you do is you bless that enemy. You use the weapons that Jesus has given, mighty weapons. You don't respond to criticism with criticism. You respond with compassion. You respond to rage with gentleness. You respond to insults with kindness. And I know, I know, as a person who has struggled with anger most of my life, I know when I say that, it feels so weak. It's just so weak. Why would you tell them to take the easy way out? It's what I've said for most of my life. You think it's easy until you try. You think it's easy to bless an enemy when they are cursing you? Well, gun up, big boy, and give it a shot. You think it's easy to turn the other cheek when somebody decides to do something evil to you? Well, why don't you try doing what Jesus said and see if it's so easy? Because I'll tell you, God's weapons, they are not easy weapons to master, but the weapons of the enemy, they feel so natural. But God's weapons, you will have to practice. You'll have to train with. So let's talk about the strategies of the devil. The enemy will attack you when you're vulnerable, so he'll wait. He'll wait till just the right time, and when you are your most vulnerable point, then he'll pounce. So where are your vulnerabilities? For me, as I've already said, it's, it's when we're angry. Jason talked a few weeks ago right out of Ephesians where he said, in your anger, don't sin. Don't give the devil a foothold in your life. I don't know if any of the rest of you have noticed who are not as verbally outspoken as I might be. But even when you have seething anger underneath, have you noticed that it allows the devil to break through the lines and everything else that you thought was strong in your life begins to crumble. There's something about anger that allows him to have access to every other area of your life. And so the self-control you thought you had in some area, it suddenly goes away when you get anger. Because in your anger and your bitterness, you start to justify everything. You let everything go. And when you have anger and bitterness towards someone that's not dealt with, you have this severe weakness walking around. It's like a target on your back from the enemy. You have a vulnerability that the enemy is just waiting time for attack. So I just want to say, I really, I want to plead with you in some ways. If you have bitterness in your heart toward anyone, this is a time of grace. You are in a safe place. This is a time for you to set it down and experience God's grace. Another vulnerability is pride. The enemy loves to attack you where he sees you're overconfident. So he knows right where you respond with self-righteousness. And you know where you see your self-righteousness? When you see somebody in your family at Thanksgiving do something, you go, I would never do that. Oh, me, I'd never do that. In that moment, you are set up for attack. 
Pride causes us to put ourselves in positions where we think we're stronger than we are. And in the minute we're overconfident, it's like we send an engraved invitation to the enemy. Hey, I'm ready. Come get me. Another place of vulnerability is just with distractions. Do you think there might be a distraction or two in our world? I mean, especially to distract you from what God is trying you to do. He loves to pull our attention away in the moment where you're most susceptible to God and to give your attention, well, literally, to anything. One of my favorite books is now 70 years old because I'm 63 years old, but anyway, this book is way more older than me. It's a classic called Screwtape Letters written by a guy named C.S. Lewis. And in this book, it's a fictional book, a little bitty book that any of you can read, and he talks about an older demon teaching a younger demon how to tempt people. The older demon is Screwtape. He's the master demon, and there's a mentor. He's mentoring a guy named Wormwood. And in one of the letters, the older demon writes about distracting the person of God, and he calls us his patient. He says, I once had a patient who was a sound atheist, and one day he sat reading something that was going to turn his mind in the wrong direction toward our enemy. He means toward God. He continues, our enemy was standing at his elbow, and in a moment before I knew it, I saw 20 years of my work beginning to totter. So I struck instantly at the part of the man that I knew had best under my control, his stomach, and I said, you need to get something to eat. And that was all the distraction he needed. He did not think about the enemy again. He goes on to advise young, word, uh, young Wormwood that if his man should ever wind up attending a church, that he should do everything he can to distract the man while he's in church. He writes, distract him with the boot that squeaks or the double chin of the pastor <laughs> or the odd clothes of the person sitting next to him. Just keep him distracted from what the enemy might be doing while he's in church. And some of you, if not all of you, have had this happen already this morning. You've thought about a word that wasn't said right or something you saw or somebody's cell phone that went off or you thought about a person and what they must be doing over on the other side of the auditorium and you missed what God was doing. God is moving in your life and the breakthrough you've been praying for in your marriage, in your parenting, it's really close. You've seen it happen where you're in the middle of a relationship and you're moving toward God and something's happening and suddenly, all of a sudden, some issue comes up at work or something happens with one of the kids and suddenly you forget all about what you were working on with God. And it's gone. It's just gone. And it really wasn't all that significant what took your attention away. You just got distracted. And the enemy would love nothing better than just to distract you, to make you think that something is bigger than this project that God is working on, which is you. God is at work on you and me. What God gets out of this life is us. That's what he's at work on. 
and you think he's doing something else. Right now, right now for some of you, right now God is trying to do something. But there's a game later today. And there's shopping to be done. And you saw a new series on Netflix and it just so happened to come to your mind. And what God was trying to do, you lost. But I say to you, you are here right now. Be here. Right now, in this moment, be here. Where God could get your attention. So I don't want to move past this moment without giving you some time to pause and reflect. So I've asked Nathan to come and lead us in prayer that will help us tune in to what God might be saying. A Christian author named Richard Foster once wrote, Our adversary majors in three things, noise, hurry, crowd. If he can keep us engaged in muchness and manyness, he will rest satisfied. Hurry is not of the devil. It is the devil. Our enemy loves to keep us busy and distracted because then we will not listen for that still, small voice of God at work in our lives. So this morning, we want to be still, silent, listen for what God might be saying to us. This may feel strange to you, especially if you're new to all of this. And as we said throughout the time, you don't need to fake anything here with us. You don't have to fake what you believe. You don't even have to try and manufacture some kind of mystical experience between you and God during this time. Maybe all that will happen during this time is that you will take a much-needed rest from this inhumane pace of our world. Or maybe you'll hear God say during this time, you are loved. Maybe during this time, God will draw some situation, some relationship, some sin, to your mind that you have been ignoring or actively avoiding bringing before him. This may be uncomfortable or your mind may start to wonder that's normal because we are not used to sitting quiet and listening to God. So I would encourage you to begin our time of silence by praying breath prayers. On the screen in a moment, you'll see two phrases. One you can say to yourself as you breathe in. One you can say as you breathe out. These phrases help us to center our minds and our bodies in this present moment where God is. Begin by praying this maybe three to five times to yourself and then just continue to focus on your breathing. Listen for God and if your mind wanders, simply pray it again and listen for God. Silence and stillness are powerful tools we can use to combat the work of the enemy in our lives. So we're going to take a moment right now to practice them together.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us what it means to slow down and to listen for your voice. Help us to not be so engaged with noise and hurry and distractions that we cannot experience your power and presence in our lives. Remind us how near you are to us. Give us a hunger for more of you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So I want to talk to you about two last strategies that are big at work in our day. Another big strategy of our enemy is division. We tend to, when people, if ever, anybody talks to me about spiritual warfare, is generally focused individualistically. We put the emphasis on, I'm feeling temptation. I'm the one that's being attacked. But our enemy typically is approaching things in a much more communal way because he knows the power of the church is in us, all us. Remember, we've learned in this series that when Paul talks to you, he means all y'all. And so the enemy tends to strike a blow at all of us. And if he can get us to be divided in the ranks, he can win. And so the prayer of Jesus as Jesus stands with his disciples one last time before he goes to Gethsemane to pray that personal prayer of, hey, I want this to pass from me if it's possible. Jesus prays for unity. He prays that the church would be united. Don't think for a second that the division that's come into the church in the last few years over American politics or social perspectives or personal preferences, don't think for a minute that that's all just by chance. We are family. And if God can separate brothers and sisters in Christ and he can get it to take place in the church over something as stupid as politics, it makes God grieve, the Holy Spirit grieve. And frankly, we should grieve a lot more than we do. When you see brothers and sisters in Christ who are separated over something as stupid as what's happening in our world. One last strategy that's grown out of that is isolation. Our enemy loves to separate one Christian away from the crowd. In verse 11, it says we all should stand firm. And one thing to note, that all the verbs in this, including all the ones about the armor of God that people often talk about, all of these are plural it's y'all put on the armor of God. Y'all stand firm. The assumption is no Christian is standing firm alone. That would be stupid. Every verb is plural. Everyone. We stand firm together. And the image I'm confident Paul has in mind is the way the Romans began to win all the wars that they won. They had a new technology. It was their full shield. It was the shield that when they came together in line, they would literally lock together one soldier next to the other. And so they'd stand in the open ground with these full body shields, and they would stand huge four by two shields side by side in a wall at the enemy. And when the enemy would attack, they just hit a wall. And it works incredibly well until one soldier gets scared. It works incredibly well until one guy says, I'm going to save me. 
I'm going to do what I feel is right. And then the whole thing falls apart. It's in the moment of attack that when one person says, I'm not staying, the whole wall begins to crumble. As sure as it's ever been, we need to stand shoulder to shoulder, shield to shield as an army of God. This is not a time for us to think, I've got it. I don't need it. I, I can go it alone. I think one of the biggest issues of my lifetime in the church is people thinking that once you have a relationship with Jesus that's personal, that it's also private and you don't need anybody else. That you don't need to think about anything but you and God. And so people will say things, well, you can connect with God by listening to worship music, and you can connect with God by listening to teaching online, and you can connect to God by being in a hunting blind, and you can connect with God while I'm shopping online. You can connect with God in all those ways. And of course, that's partially true. And the enemy loves nothing better to give you a little bit of truth so you will be fooled. It is true, and it is also a lie. That's what he does. He gives you a little truth, so we can hide the bait. We need each other. We need each other's brothers and sisters. That's the way the church is designed to work and the enemy tries to pull us apart. We need each other especially to sustain not only our faith, but the faith. It might be if you're here today and you're raising a child or you are raising a grandchild that in fact your faith might survive the rest of your lifetime if you had to live in isolation, but the enemy doesn't have his eyes on you. Maybe the enemy has his eyes on your child that's sleeping down the hall that cannot handle your isolation. Because you can tell a kid as much as you want to that something is really important to you, and a kid knows what's important to you by what you do, not by what you say. And they will determine what you really believe and what mama and papa and mom and dad believe not by what they say, but by what they do. And I believe the greatest spiritual casualty of our generation may be that somewhere we drop the baton of faith behind us somewhere. But we need to commit and we need to recognize we do not live on a playground. We are on a battlefield, and so we need each other. So don't go back to sleep on me. Don't hit the snooze button and say you'll think about it later. Parents, there's way too much at stake. Grandparents, there's too much at stake. I, I, I want to say this really clearly. You need the church, and so do I. I need Jesus, but I also need you. This is how God designed us. We need, we need him and we need each other. This is why we see every, say every week, you need to take your next step from just sitting in rows facing the front to getting in circles and serving teams and places where you can be known. And so I hope you'll take the next step and you'll go to our next step center, like Nathan's already said, and you'll talk to our team there today. But as we end today, we're going to come together at the table of communion where we remember the moment when Jesus had the decisive victory over the enemy through his death on the cross. You were hunted elements like this when you came in. 
If you did not get them, they're right outside these doors. We'd love for you to get them so you could partake with us today. If you're a follower of Jesus, this table is for you. If you don't believe like we believe, it's okay. You can just let this time pass. You are welcome here, and you don't have to fake anything this morning. Through these symbols of bread and juice, we remember Jesus' blood and body given for us on the cross to free us from the power of the enemy and offer a new life in his kingdom. And if you're not sure you believe it, again, use this time just to pray that God would open your heart and mind to what could be true for you. So if you feel comfortable doing so, would you take the elements now and I'm going to ask that you would stand with me to do this today. And as we're standing, we're going to receive this meal together as a family. So now, let's open and take the bread out. This is the body of Jesus given for us to forgive our sins and to give us the gift of new life. Let's take, eat, and remember. And now the cup. This is the blood of Jesus poured out for many on the cross to put to death the kingdom of darkness and bring us into the kingdom of God. Let's drink and remember. For whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we declare God's victory over sin, that sin's been defeated, and that Jesus is king of this world. Amen. And now our band's going to come and lead us in singing a song. It reminds us that God is always at work around us, fighting on our behalf. And although we're in the midst of a spiritual war, we do not fight this battle on our own. God is fighting for us, and greater is he that is in us than the one that's in the world. So brothers and sisters, let's sing together and honor our God.